Good day to you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Film Focus, episode 71, The Pros and Cons of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Good day to you, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Film Focus. I am your host, the Hypersonic 55, and I'm glad you decided to join me once again for some film-related discussion. And today, we have one of the biggest, most powerful episodes that I've wanted to do on this podcast since the very beginning back in 2016. This episode is, strangely enough, three years in the making, and I have actually put off doing it two or three times as well. So, yeah, this is the big one. The pros and cons of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There is a lot to discover and talk about, and it's such an epic episode that I couldn't do it alone. I have my returning guest, my friend, my good homie, Drew from Drew Removes. Removed. He doesn't remove anything, he reviews movies. That's what I was trying to say. Drew, hi, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Careful not to hurt yourself, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I tend to do that a lot. It's fine. Um, how you been keeping, man? I've been doing good. Trying to keep warm in the in the winter here in the northern U.S. Yeah, yeah. I totally hear you, man. Um, we've had a fair amount of snow over here as well, so it's just um, it's nice to be able to walk outside and not fear for my life, you know, with the ice and stuff like that. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like this is a notable episode on the podcast because I've been developing it for a while and while this won't be the full-on comprehensive like you know was it Marvel Cinematic Universe experience in terms of of this discussion just because we end up talking as long as the bloody movies go on this will be as in-depth as I can get it while still trying to be as casual as possible so how this episode is going to work is you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe now has been going on for over a decade spanning 20 movies and along with Captain Marvel on the horizon which will be the 21st it's weird to think that the Marvel Studios films have existed now for 11 years um, but that just goes to show you how powerful well-crafted and just well executed this whole thing has been from the people at Marvel and uh, now Disney as well and you know, I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I remember seeing it when it first formed back in 2008 and just seeing it expand into this beautiful tapestry of wonderfulness. However, the films aren't perfect. There are certainly, you know, some issues that we will discuss. Some more personal to me, some that are the general consensus of some people on the internet. But yeah, we'll get into all that. So I want to present the pros and cons, start with the pros first and then the cons afterwards. and. Depending on what the topics are within said department, we will go into depth about certain ones. But yeah, this is going to be a fun episode, so hopefully you will enjoy. Um, Drew, are you ready to begin? Let's do it to it. Alright, cool. So, we're starting with the pros. And at the start of the pros, we have the starting point of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Iron Man. Now, caution minds back to 2008, where... You know, we were coming off of, you know, when it comes to Marvel films, X-Men The Last Stand and Ghost Rider. 
and Spider-Man 3. Not exactly the best of films that you can go about and, uh, you know, experience in, like, you know, uh, comic book adaptations. So, with Marvel Studios, they had started making, like, you know, a bit of noise as this new company. They were going to start making comic book films based on these, like, lesser-known Marvel-based characters. And, you know, I thought, oh, what is this? Well, I don't care about all these rather random characters. I just barely knew enough about, like, a... Uh, Thor and uh, Captain America, but I didn't really care about Iron Man, he was nothing to me. But then I saw the trailer for uh, Iron Man, I was like, this looks pretty cool. And then I saw the film in 2008, I was like, oh my gosh, this film is amazing. And I know back in 2008, everyone was going on about how great The Dark Knight is, and don't get me wrong, that film is really good. But for me, as someone who just didn't care about a character like Iron Man, for the people at Marvel Studios to go about and craft this film that had this sense of realism to it, but also incorporated those comic book elements, told a nice, interesting, relatable, and funny story that had really good, interesting action and a good character art for someone who's not very nice, but then you can see the sort of humanity in him in the form of Tony Stark. Have assembled a really good cast and you know John Favreau is the director who had made a few uh, you know notable films here and there but we weren't sure of his talent until we stepped into this you know film and then created the film that it was it's great for me Iron Man is still one of the best films in the MCU it still holds up very well it's a very nice clean straightforward story with nice interesting you know is it progression really good just fun and interesting stuff and I like the music, I love the cast obviously, Robert Downey Jr. This was the just the wonderful best role that was ever made for him and the seeds that were sown for the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, those small set up so much wonderful things. Um, Drew, uh, what do you think about Iron Man? I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, It's even after we've had like 21 or about to be 21 I don't remember the exact number but a lot of films that is that is still like one of my favorites up there and the it's honestly like the perfect template of how to do a superhero origin film yeah Uh, it's it's got the excellent pacing Um, it did the casting very well the characters are very well developed whether it's our hero our villain our side characters, they're all just well written and acted very well. With Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, like that's one of those like spot on casting that's up there with like Wolverine and Hugh Jackman. Um, Definitely. And, and the funny thing is, he he put his own spin on the character. Like I know that's good, and I feel like that term gets thrown around a lot sometimes. Yeah. For, for like for when like when actors do a role. But the comic book Tony at that time and what he did were completely separate. Like he was still that genius playboy, f- f- uh, genius philanthropist. I think I just messed that up. Genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. There we go. Yeah. Uh, like, he, like he was still that in the comics, but um, he wasn't as like comedy centric, like what uh, RDJ did with it. Yeah. And so it actually influenced his character in the comics, and now that's what the, ever since then, that's actually what the characters have been like. So it, so you can tell that when the movies are starting influencing their source material, you can tell that they did something right. Yeah, definitely. There's only a handful of actors that's ever been able to, like, sort of influence the uh, comic book counterpart. I think the only other person, notable person that comes to mind is Blade. 
because um, back in the 90s as far as I'm aware there wasn't really that much love for Blade I mean there was probably love for him obviously but after the first and second films came out I know that there was a trend to like make him look more like the Wesley Snipes incarnation and then incorporate some of the stuff that they had done from the film so it's just great to see what uh, Robert Downey Jr. has brought to the uh, film and how him and some of the um, other supporting cast members like uh, Pepper and Happy Hogan and uh, obviously Jarvis eventually becoming um, Ultron. Oh no, sorry, <laughs> eventually becoming Vision. Um, <laughs> silly me. Um, have like, you know, as it transcended into like, you know, the last side of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, and one other thing I need to mention, ladies and gentlemen, before we begin, that um, in order for us to go into this uh, pros and cons in a comprehensive manner, this is going to be spoiler heavy. So if there are films within the cinematic universe you haven't seen, I'll try to put time codes in, but just to be honest, this is going to be spoiler filled. So if there's certain things that you don't want to hear, just try to skip ahead, but there's no way I'm going to be able to fully talk about this without going into the era spoilers. So this is spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Okay, cool. Um, without we're, with that, we're moving on. Um, so, with the next point I wanted to bring up, it was the sense of realism and believability that was brought to these fantastical properties. Now, I don't know about you, Drew, but there was a lot of talk around, I guess, the late 90s to early 2000s when the comic book properties really started to take, really started to take off, um, about the level of realism that was to be applied to these comic book properties because at the end of the day a lot of these uh, comics had really crazy looking characters with crazy color based costumes with you know I guess impractical costumes at certain points powers that were you know beyond the realm of human comprehension at certain points and because of the worlds and the other creatures characters realms and um, you know other supernatural happenings it was kind of hard to get your head around that unless it was in the realm of fiction so obviously with some of these early adaptations there were certain things that had to be scaled down or changed for the world of film so you know obviously with the X-Men films there were certain elements of uh, character abilities that were downplayed the costumes were you know obviously changed for the X-Men films they had those black leather costumes instead of like what they had in the comics with uh, Spider-Man, you know, in the first film, he was given, you know, organic web shooters instead of the mechanical ones that he built. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a few things changed. Obviously, the uh, radioactive spider was, uh, you know, genetically mutated spider that was fused from, like, you know, several different spiders. And, you know, numerous other changes that were made for um, other films like Hulk, Daredevil, um, the first Fantastic Four film and so on and so forth. So with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the interesting thing that Kevin Feige and uh, some of the other filmmakers made, especially during the phase one period, was how they wanted to bring a sense of realism to the characters while also um, keeping in line with the source material. And I feel like Iron Man was probably the easiest and probably the best bet for the first adaptation because technology is something that's always constantly evolving and changing and part of our lives and while obviously stuff like the arc reactor technology and some of the stuff that Tony Stark has built is still a little ways off in our world, it felt tangible. And n not only just beyond the way in which they were able to depict the uh, powers and abilities of the characters, but I feel like just the way in which the characters talked and the way in which they presented the world felt like probably the most realistic and relatable world of any comic book film I'd seen. Just in the sense that Spider-Man 
even though that felt realistic at the time, it felt like it took place in, I guess, a heightened state of reality where it was just a little beyond the realm of realism just because some of the characters you knew wouldn't talk like that and certain things you saw in that New York City just, I don't know, it just didn't feel as realistic. And the X-Men films, even though they had a lot of real issues and stuff that they brought to the table in terms of some of the stuff that they did with the story and characters, again, there just wasn't that sense of, you know, was it this could take place in my world kind of thing and I feel like the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe just did a really good job of placing that um, I guess in our world it just felt real and tangible and especially with the stuff they did with Thor trying to bring him into the world of realism with the whole um, magic is science that we don't understand angle and you know sort of I guess treating Thor like he was I guess an alien more so than anything else but they did some really good jobs about, like, you know, just um, simplifying the comic book origins of these characters, but also, um, you know, is it still adhering to the source material? Yeah, um, that's those are all very good points. And I think, to kind of go off your point about Iron Man, like, that was one of the best ones that they could have done, because he really doesn't have superpowers. He, his power is money, to quote Ben Affleck uh, in Batman and Batman yeah. vs. Superman. Um no, that's Justice League. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, they didn't have to worry about anything, like, being too out there, because essentially they were just working with science fiction. And it's not even not, like, far-flung science fiction of what you might see in, like, Star Wars. It's like, this could happen in the next couple of years, science fiction. So I think that I think that really helped them establish that, like, yeah. realism. And then... Uh, so just in keeping with phase one, uh, yeah, the whole Thor thing with the, um, they're actually aliens and it's not magic, it's science, which they essentially retconned later on and said, no, it's actually magic. Um, again, yeah. that's the kind of be like, okay, well, yeah, it's just, you know, if you have an alien race that's, you know, thousands of years or so or more ahead of us in technology, yeah, they're going to have these crazy technology bits. So that helps them make it more believable. I mean, like, the, really the most out there that they had in the in the Phase 1 was for the Hulk. And, uh, you know, so that's, then that's not really that far of a stretch, I don't think. Yeah, man. So these two points that I have, um, I guess I could sort of mesh them into the same area. So there's the setting up of Phase 1 and the references to the comics and future films in uh, Phase 1 and 2. So, um... One of the things I really appreciated about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, especially in the first phase between 2008 to 2012, was the whole way that this universe started to form. At the end of Iron Man, you had Samuel Jackson showing up as the ultimate version of Nick Shield and talking about the Avengers project, and I remember seeing that for the first time, and I was like, oh my god, if they could pull this off, this would be the most hype thing in the history of existence. And just back then it felt like such a bizarre concept that you'd be able to take several you know was it individual characters from solo films and then mesh them together but Marvel plotted a course they planned things out they put the tiny seeds in there so um you know was it when uh Hulk came out just about a month afterwards you had Tony Stark showing up uh, at the end of the film visiting um mm-hmm. was it Thunderbolt Ross in the bar saying that he's got a team he's a uh, put inside together and I was just like oh the seeds are being planted and it was hype I think was it at the time my favorite of the you know was it tiny pieces that they put together was Thor's hammer 
at the end of Iron Man 2 when Coulson went to um, obviously the desert to see it and he's just like yeah sir we found it and I was like oh god I mean at the time I think was it I liked Iron Man 2 I didn't love it as much as the first but I thought it was you know pretty good for like certain aspects of it but I, I think I remember watching that film twice just to see that like post credits again because I was like yo I knew Thor in my life man and you know there's just a whole load of random other subtle things um, that they were able to incorporate um, you know from uh, I guess even though this is technically not official but in like uh, The Incredible Hulk and that deleted like uh, scene which I think was it an alternative open was it or an alternative ending where uh, Hulk was in the uh, yeah yeah, I know what you're talking about yeah there was a scene of uh, Captain America's shield uh, frozen in ice. I was like, oh man. So these guys plotted so many minute things that obviously became, um, you know, that eagle eyed fans were able to pay attention to. Um, another one just off the top of my head was like in Thor, where, um, you know, was it when he gets the shirt that he puts on from uh, Jane Foster and you could see that his name was Donald Blake on there. And obviously, if you know the comics, that's. Uh, Thor's alter ego in the comics as well so um, I remember watching that with my uncle and I heard a audible like a little chuckle from him and I was like yeah if he knows and it's just nice to be in a crowd of people that um, get the reference and it's just a, it's a minute set of people but it's nice so yeah there was a lot of plotting that came into play to get to the Avengers and the seeds were sown in such an intricate way that when it came out everything just slurred together like just this crazy giant jigsaw puzzle of beauty that's a good way to describe it (laughs) yeah um speaking of the avengers let's just move on to that point the avengers i know in this world of comic book movies that we have right now the avengers now just seems i guess a little less significant but i feel like a lot of people have forgotten the significance significance of this film when it first showed up oh i have not um, forgotten my friend <laughs> this is still the top like up there is one of my favorite mcu films even after they've all come out this is still my number one or not it's not my number number one but it's up there yeah and a lot of it is to do just with what it achieved like it's a it's a well-written movie it's it's a good movie it's action-packed the characters are great but just what it what it's a symbol of is what makes it one of the best ones oh yeah definitely so again ladies and gentlemen i'll show my back to 2011 we just had captain america the first avenger and thor come out and they were the last two pieces of this uh you know was it puzzle introducing the avengers concept and Back then, again, this had not really been done in the superhero world before. There had been certain films that had alluded to the fact that certain other superheroes might exist within the same world, but this was a film where it was just like, okay, you know all these characters you've seen in all these individual films, we're going to put them all in the same place and make it work. And it was just, there was so many ways that this film could fail, but we were very lucky to have Kevin Feige and... Joss Whedon. Oh my gosh, I almost lost his name for a second. I almost there. had to step in there. I was yeah, I know, and I'm just like, I was like, mate, if I forget that, I'm going to be like, you know, what's it, roasted alive. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we had them and the wonderful creative team over at Marvel to go about and assemble, um, pun intended, this team. And I remember seeing the first trailer, I'm like, oh my god, they're making it happen, aren't they? But seeing the film in the cinema for the first time, it's gonna sound lame but it was magical you had all these different 
personalities coming together, you saw such like uh, natural flowing connections with uh, you know Tony and uh, Bruce Banner, or you got to see like you know was it uh, Cap and uh, Tony butt heads. Or you get to see like a character who established connections before, like uh, Thor and uh, Coulson, obviously from Thor's single film into this one, have like, you know, a bit of a connection there as well. And the way in which that whole film was set up, it was great. You had Loki from Thor come in to be the main villain. He's got like, you know, was it some issues to uh, take care of from his film that he brings into um, the Avengers. You had to assemble these crazy, like, you know, was it larger-than-life characters, both in personality and their abilities, put them into the same room and get them to work together. They butt heads, they fight each other, but then when the time comes, they come together to become something more. And that film was so well executed just because it was very simple to follow, and even if you hadn't gotten, like, you know, the experience of seeing all the other films, it was comprehensive enough that you was able to get what was going on. The uh, character interplays was fantastic. This film has some of the best humor in all of the Marvel films, with just the right amount of humor at all the right points. The quips were great. Uh, it felt like a very Joss Whedon, like you know, was it kind of uh, adventure, especially if you know of his uh, you know TV-based work. And the action sequences feature some of the most glorious, fun, nerdy-based comic stuff I've ever seen. I still get giddy um, just seeing the Avengers eventually assemble. Um, in that little panning shot, oh, and the music, oh my god, dude, that's <laughs> so yeah, sorry. me too. No, don't worry about it, cause I, I'm the same way. Like when that that shot when they're like all coming together and it's going around them, and you hear the theme going around them. Man, I every time still get goosebumps. It's and smile and start cheering and yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, really, for for the Avengers, like having Joss Whedon come on and and write and direct that was one of their best early decisions over at marvel studios like he's he's really good at doing ensemble stuff and like if you've seen firefly or buffy or anything like that like you'll know that he knows how to write characters and uh and balance them and kind of make them each be their own character and not kind of just all have similar personalities all through phase two and even through a good chunk of phase three you could still feel his influence because a lot of the movies after that, they all had a very similar tone and sense of humor, which I, I know that a lot of people ended up, you know, pointing out and and kind of moved as like pointing out as like a con for the franchise or for, yeah yeah for, for the franchise. Uh, but I mean, again, just kind of say that like that's all because of what this one person did. That's pretty impressive. Oh yeah, damn right, man. He's um. His influence definitely stretched beyond into uh, Phase 2 and uh, just helped, I guess, a lot of the other filmmakers just uh, see that for um, having, uh, you know, was it a pretty notable cast of people who all have large and life personalities, it is possible to, like, distribute them so that they all have equal screen time and that they can all interact in, like, you know, is it a natural, fun and uh, interesting manner, really. Alright, with that point, I want to move on to the uh, point of the change in genres in each film. Now, while there is a, a formula to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, obviously, with their films, I feel like a lot of people tend to downplay the differences between them. When you go from Iron Man to Thor to Captain America, the first Avenger, and the Avengers, 
even in Phase 1, there is a very different feel between these films. Obviously, Captain America, the first Avenger, is set during World War II, and, um, you know, there's a very different tone to uh, Thor, which has a more Shakespearean, uh, larger-than-life scope to it. And, uh, you know, Iron Man is definitely a lot more, I guess, uh, down-to-earth in the realm of science fiction, like you said, uh, Drew. But then, um, you know... Avengers is literally the first film in the cinematic universe that full-on goes, you know what, this is going to be a comic book film. You know all that crazy stuff you've seen in there, we're going to bring some of that, you know, with crazy aliens, like, you know, was it crazy levels of destruction, action sequences, which features just full-on madness and some stuff that just, <laughs> you know, just doesn't exist outside your back door. So um, it's some really good stuff. And going into phase two, that's where the films really started to differentiate in terms of the style and genres. So, um, you know, you had the space opera when you came to Guys of the Galaxy, the first one, and uh, the political thriller of The Winter Soldier. And then you go to the heist movie of Ant-Man. Then you go to like even more recent examples like uh, Black Panther is definitely not the same as some of these other films that you have. And Doctor Strange, even though it's a superhero film, it definitely features some more variations on some of the typical elements of you know the superhero genre, especially when it comes to that ending with Dormammu, which is probably like one of the you know most unique of any of the Marvel um, you know final acts that we've had so far. So there's definitely a variation in terms of the genres that the uh, directors brought into these films, the tones and the levels of drama that was implemented, it all varies, so to say all these films are the same, it just feels like uh, too much of a blank statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And and the thing with that, though, is that if, if they're going to make this many films as they have, and especially if you have other players like 20th Century Fox and um, Sony trying to make their own superhero films in here as well, you need that to- that style differential, cause that's because if you just start making the same movie, you know, over and over and over again, then yeah, they are gonna start to feel the same, and and you're gonna start seeing these problems uh, that people have called out, but like on a larger scale. But by keeping each one, it, it's like another style that just happens to have superheroes. That's what allows them to stand out and be unique. And, and not make things repetitive. So, like you said, like like the thriller for or the political thriller for uh, or a spy movie, however you want to phrase that for 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 Winter Soldier. The you know I like heist movies, so the fact that I, I, Ant Man was a heist movie, I really enjoyed that. Or they kind of like bounced outside of the MCU. Uh, Logan was a western, right? Like you don't see superhero westerns very much, and besides that one being well written and a freaking amazing movie from uh from Hugh Jackman and um. What's his face? Well, Patrick Stewart. Yes, sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> like, they may just made that way different than anything else. And so, when you have all these other movies that do the same thing from the MCU, like that's needed to help keep things fresh. So the fact that they recognize that early is another f- amazing feat of and just general pre-planning that they did to to make sure that people wouldn't get tired of these movies. Oh yeah, definitely is. Uh quintessential and um, this sort of feeds into the uh, next topic which I have which is the choice of directors. The Marvel uh, Studios um, people are very smart and uh, good about picking some of these uh, 
you know, directors to make their films. You know, is it whether you're talking about John Favreau or Joss Whedon or the Russo brothers or uh, Ryan Coogler? Um, oh gosh, his name has just escaped me now. Um, oh no, I lost it. No, no. <laughs> is, it, is it James Gunn? Oh no, not James Gunn. Although he is no. a wonderful choice. Um, Criminy. Oh no, uh, Taika Waititi. There we go. Gosh, that was oh, bothering me so much. <laughs> for, for Ragnarok. Yeah, yeah. So we have like a great sense of like you know, was it different um, people who are notable for their different styles, and you can definitely see when it's a notable director like um, how they implement their styles into each of these films. James Gunn, his uh, style was all over. The Guardians films, especially if you're familiar with some of his other movies as well. I saw um, the only film of his that I saw before Guardians or around the time that Guardians came out was uh, Super, and that film is so strange and weird. But if you listen to the dialogue and the way the characters interact in that film, you can see it clear as day in the Guardians films. Um, Avengers number one and two obviously clearly have a uh, Whedon's like touch all over it in, in terms of the dialogues and the quips and the interaction between the characters. The Russo brothers definitely created their own tone once they made uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, which translates into Civil War and some of the elements in Infinity War as well. And even though no one likes to talk about Iron Man 3, I don't mind that film that much and I think Shane Black's style was definitely implemented in that film as well, so if you're familiar with uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, or like I think the work he did in the Lethal Weapon movies, um, that type of dialogue, um, you know, that sort of dark sense of humour and obviously the implementation of Christmas was felt in that film as well. So there's definitely a different sense of style with different directors. And um, even uh, Joe Johnson, who did the first Avenger, you can see sort of the stuff that he did with the Rocketeer in the first Avenger and um, Kenneth Branagh who did the first Thor film you can see his influence uh, you know during like I guess the uh, Shakespearean films implemented in that film as well so again there are certain directors who have a style tone that they bring from their other films that's implemented into these films which you know change things up yeah and I think that Marvel recognizes more towards the second half of everything that, that they've done so far because like for phase one and a good chunk of phase two uh they definitely had much more of a c control of whatever of what they allowed their directors to do and get away with oh yeah, uh, yeah. um which is part of the reasons why um what's his i can't remember his name but he left ant-man uh and then and then the oh other yeah edgar wright yeah 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 that's it but he left because created differences, and um, and Marvel won't let him do exactly what he wanted, so that's why he why he bounced. But then by the time, but then like shortly after, James Gunn was allowed to do a little bit more with with the Guardians in, in Volume Two. Yeah. And then and then by the time Ragnarok came around, they just let him do whatever he wanted, and it's very clearly it worked. So I think so I think that they're recognizing that as that each director can have the free reign that they need and still make great movies so i just wish that they would have recognized it a little bit sooner so we could have had a, an edgar wright ant-man movie because i would have loved to see how that turned out like a pure edgar wright movie that would have been amazing i know literally it's the one thing in the uh, mcu which i think a whole load of fans lament just because it would have been such an interesting and fun experience considering that man's like you know was the uh, talent for uh 
assembling like the right kind of people and having the right kind of dialogue and direction especially after seeing what he did with baby driver it would have been very interesting to see what he would have done with that man absolutely um and now i move on to something that sort of feeds into what i said before about like you know realism and believability uh but it's the visual realization or the source material so when it comes to uh, stuff like character costumes in the world the uh, people at Marvel, you know, um, whether it be the producers, execs, and obviously filmmakers, uh, they have done such a great job at, like, you know, making some of these things more tangible. Like, um, certain character costumes, like, say, uh, Thor, Captain America, Vision, um, maybe some of the villains, like uh, Ultron, and uh, even Thanos as well. You look at some of these characters in the comics, and some of them are, like, you know, really big beefy or flamboyant super colorized uh, characters with such strange like you know uniforms you're just like how are they gonna make that work and in some cases they've had to go about and change things entirely but I remember seeing the first image for Thor and how they were able to um, make his uniform I guess a combination of what he looked like in the ultimate comics but also incorporate the original costume as well they made it look so realistic and I guess um partly Viking-like as well. Um, the use of the chainmail was great and I was just like, there's something really interesting and cool, to me at least, about seeing the way in which they can visualize um, character costumes. Um, with Iron Man it was a little easier because again it was tech-based and they had, I think was it one of the actual comic book artists who worked on the uh, one of the runs of Iron Man during that time come in to consult the uh, Mark II and III armors I believe as well and for someone like Captain America, whose costume looks like, you know, a, a bit cheesy, obviously, in the comics, I was wondering for ages, how are they going to make that work? And the first Avenger costume is pretty well done. At first, I was like, I'm not sure I was overly keen on the fact that he had, like, um, you know, the weird straps in the middle, and they just colorized it so it looked kind of like the costume, but again, they were trying to make it practical. And that was the cool thing about, like, Marvel. Um, in the way in which they were able to take the costume from the comics and make them more practical. So some characters don't look as similar to their combat counterparts, say like Star-Lord or Scarlet Witch for example who is very very different from her uh, comic book incarnation because you know obviously some costumes like that wouldn't fly but it's interesting to see certain characters who do look a lot more like their combat counterparts which as we got into like phase two and three um, they were able to do a lot more of so um, you know characters like Vision, Doctor Strange, Black Panther um, even Spider-Man even though his suit's a little bit more tech-based it definitely has like you know as it echoes of the original combat material in there as well and um, for someone like Tony Stark who has multiple different suits it was always interesting to go from film to film to see how many different um, you know suits he had and where they drew inspiration from like the briefcase armor being like the silver centurion at least I think that's what that's called in there and yeah. they eventually finally get to see like the Hulkbuster armor in uh, Age of Ultron which was bloody awesome such a big beast of a thing um, but then you also have like the worlds as well. I remember seeing Asgard for the first time and I was just like wow they were able to make that work which was just really interesting to me considering like uh, again the source material where that comes from but then going to other worlds like uh, Nowhere like in Guardians of the Galaxy with that big skull head of the crazy color scheme that comes in there or um, one of my other favorites like in Infinity War when they went to um, 
I think what's the name of that place? Uh, Nivedavlir. I I can't say that for the life of me without sounding like a donut. Yeah. But where they had to uh, forge uh, Thor's new hammer. Um, that place mm-hmm. was very interesting in design because of um, not only obviously Peter Dinklage's um, you know uh, giant uh, dwarf character, but also because of the environment. It's just like this big set of rings surrounding like a dying star or well, dead star that needed to be reignited. The way in which they're able to take these comic book source material things and then like bring them into live action and make them work is just. I'm continuously fascinated um, by it, especially like um, two more examples. Sorry, another <laughs> um, the quantum realm um, from Ant Man, which was crazy. Seeing that for the first time, and then the crazy acid trip sequence in Doctor Strange as well. Seeing how they were able to show you what like different dimensions look like in that, I'm just like, look how far we've come now. This stuff is insane to me, and yet it's comprehensible yeah uh to go back to the the costumes i actually disagree with you a little bit where i i think they're actually pretty faithful to a lot of the comic book uh, costumes um there are really only two exceptions that i can really think of um hawkeye because good thing because that purple jumpsuit that they would have put him in is bloody ugly Uh, and two is um uh, captain america like because that like chainmail type or, or like fish scale armor thing that he's got in the in the comics would just look weird to try to make a realistic version of that. But they were able to incorporate that general style in such a way into what they ended up making his his costume be for most of the for essentially First Avenger and uh, Civil War. Um, it was just, like very reminiscent of that but like you said practical but like like for like iron man like so the artist name was eddie grenov is is his name he's um illustrated in a lot of different books for for marvel yeah um but his but the 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 mark i think that was a mark three was essentially what the extremist armor is um and so like like that's one thing i've liked about the multiple armors that he's done uh, yeah over the course of these these past 11 or so years is that like a few of them are kind of like unique but like that was the that, that was his extremist armor from the comics you, like you brought up the silver centauran armor from or at least the color scheme like in the in three there actually was a real centauran armor um or like in the most recent infinity war like that's um he he had that armor a couple of years ago now but it's called the uh, the bleeding edge armor oh yeah where it kind of just where it was like inside of him and it came out when he needed it um so so it's kind of the same where he is it's like it's a it's a nanotechnology as he described it um but in the comics it was a little more of a comic booky thing yeah yeah uh so it's kind of cool that, that, that they've kind of incorporated a lot of those in, into all the different iron man armors or like thor like like they use a combination of his original 60s and 70s appearances and uh like that was when he would just had like the 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 top tunic on and didn't have the the chainmail but then when he got the chainmail for his for the fights like that's what that's the costume that he had up until probably a couple of years ago so the, the, there's another way another way that they incorporated all that which is really cool or like even black panther like a more recent change to his costume is like the ability for him to like 
make it come on on and off like this very similar way to like what his updated suit was in his in in the in the Black Panther movie. Um, and and for the most part, uh, all the other ones are the same too, except for like some slight differences. But they're pretty close to to their comic book or uh, counterparts, which is I, was one of my favorite things of how the, uh, so far what they've brought about bringing these characters onto the screen. Yeah, definitely, man. The next point I want to talk about is one of my favorite things about a lot of movies in general, and that's the action sequences. Now. Um, I can't say I've ever been like you know is it a super hardcore like uh, comic book reader just because I never really had that many um, I didn't really have a dedicated comic book shop in my town where I used to live so most of the stuff I got was um, you know through the world of animation um, so you know all the 90s based cartoons of uh, you know obviously Batman Spider-Man X-Men um, you know was it Hulk and all that sort of stuff but my uncle uh, thankfully supplied me with certain things um, during like you know I guess towards the age of like 9 or 10 so I did get like a bit of my comic book fix but the interesting thing about these characters is uh, knowing how they fight, knowing their techniques so obviously um, when these characters are going to be brought to screen you're just like okay uh, will Iron Man have his uni being, will Thor be able to like you know was it spin his hammer before he like flies off will we get to see um, I don't know, you know, a numerous other set of things that, like, you know, as it defined these characters. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe has brought it in spades in terms of giving you, like, very interesting, sometimes comedic and sometimes very serious action sequences, which are wonderfully choreographed and bring these, like, characters from the pages of the comics into live action in such a fabulous way. Um, you know, one of my, I could talk about numerous different sequences from like, uh, Thor's initial fight with the, uh, Frost Giants along with the Warriors 3, that happens to be some of my favorite stuff ever, to, um, the hand-to-hand combat sequences between, uh, Captain America and Winter Soldier, which, as a massive fan of martial arts, to be able to see that sort of intricate hand-to-hand combat, which is clear as day, very quick, and just perfectly choreographed and looks dangerous as well at the same time is beautiful and then obviously you have the craziest stuff like that crazy uh, panning sequence during the Avengers where you got to see all the characters flying through the city like um, you know Hawkeye shooting like you know dudes with um, his arrows on top of a building Iron Man's flying through the city shooting things he shoots a beam at Captain America's shield which he reflects and shoots at the other Jatari you come onto the bloody big like you know space worm and Thor is like you know beating some guys up Hulk is beating some guys up Hulk takes a piece of the armor stabs it in the <laughs> he stabs it in the worm and Thor goes back and sh- lights it up with his lightning smacks it smashes the whole thing there is too much there is too much to keep going um you know you have the uh crazy battle sequence in um black panther or more interestingly the unique one-on-one battles between like say uh t'challa and killmonger or t'challa and um mbaku or in Infinity War, you get to see all the crazy stuff going on between, um, obviously, certain members of the Avengers and the Black Order. All the inventive, creative fight between, uh, you know, Thanos and several of the members on um, Titan, which was just crazy. Again, there was t- there's so much going on with these films in terms of the way in which they're choreographed. And there's just all these wonderful little details. 
that just make you just go ooh and ah and oh my god, you know? It's just wonderfully put together stuff. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the airport scene in Civil War. I was going to, but I wanted <laughs> you to go. I was like, you know what? I've been talking for a few too many seconds. Let's let's go back and let give Drew. You you got you got stuff. Throw it at me. Because that's one of my favorite ones. I mean, I'd say my two of my favorite scenes in all of the MCU so far is the airport scene in Civil War. Yeah. And the and the battle on Titan of the heroes versus uh, Thanos. Thanos. Um. I I think the action scenes got much better. As more towards um, like maybe the second half of phase two and into phase three. Well, definitely all of a lot of phase three. Um, yeah. But yeah, action action films is like one of my favorite genres. Um, so you know, I'm a I'm a sucker for a well choreographed, well well shot action scene. Uh, so definitely enjoyed all of them, all the big scenes in, in all the movies. But um, early on. Like, all the heroes had similar powers. Like, I think Joss Whedon described them as punchy powers. Right? Like, basically, they were they were super strong. More yeah, or less, yeah. they, were, they that's all they were was super strong. Whether it was through their armor, whether it was through hulk, hulking out, whether it was through some sol- super soldier serum. They, that's all they had was their super strength. So they can only... So base, even up through, like, Age of Ultron, that's a lot of what they had. Um, I mean, like, the most crazy one was Ant-Man. Like oh, with, yeah, for his, yeah. his shrinking stuff, like up until then, all the heroes had the same or at least very similar power set. So, a, a lot of the action sequences are very similar to what you would see in a non-superhero action movie, like say like your Borns or uh, like a Schwarzenegger movie or something like that, right? Yeah. So it, it's a, I mean, you know, they're still fun and exciting and cool, but. You come to watch superheroes to, to see superhero stuff. So once we start getting the, the these other characters who like like Scarlet Witch and Doctor Strange, who can do all this other stuff, they I think they became much better or at least or maybe not better but more interesting. Like like the to go back to the battle on Titan, like the fact like there was like three different power sets going on at once. You had Spider-Man with his webs and his, and his mechanical arms. You had you had Doctor Strange and all of his magic. You had you had Iron Man with with his bleeding edge armor and and all the stuff that he was doing with it. And and Mantis with her, you know, empathy powers. Like that was so cool just because of the way that all these powers were interacting, which was again one of the reasons why uh all that stuff in Avengers at the end was really cool, as you were just saying, because they were using their powers together. But they were all the same kind of powers, and then, so that's why I think that's why the Titan battle is hands down one of my favorites, because it because it was so well choreographed and integrated all these different power sets together, and it showed you how well they could work if these heroes really tried. It was just it was really cool. Oh yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. It's definitely become like uh, more varied with the uh, introduction of like some of these more powerful and uh, uniquely powered uh, individuals that the films have gone on. Now let's talk about the uh, characters in a little bit more detail. Now, again, as someone who wasn't aware of some of these characters prior to their uh, film introductions, you know, it was I didn't know I was gonna like uh, characters like uh, Captain America or Tony Stark or Thor or Ant Man. Um, or even the Guardians of the Galaxy, who at the time before that film came out, I had no clue who the hell they were. You know, I remember seeing the concept art, and I'm just like, okay, um, there's a big tree there. 
There's a, there's a raccoon as well. I'm just Sorry, like, I'll just inject something here real quick. Yeah. But you're definitely not alone. Uh, <laughs> so, no, like, so that version of Guardians that showed up in what was that 2013 had only been together since 2008, and in such a niche spot in the comics that they were not well known at all, even by a lot of comic book people. Uh, yeah, so, so I do fact. remember uh, just being on like I think it was a superhero hype at the time. Just looking at that, and um, I was just in the comments section as well, and there was just a lot of people just talking about. Okay, um, there was a few people that are aware of like um, the uh, Guardians, and they were saying, "Oh yeah, this is gonna be good." Um, but I just knew there was a lot of people that were just like you know just very confused or thought that this was gonna be the film that you know was it uh, would make Marvel fail essentially. But yeah, the filmmakers and the writers and obviously. Uh, our Lord and Savior Kevin Feige, as he's known online in certain circles, did a really good job of uh, creating these characters who you liked, who you care about, and even if they weren't like you know necessarily like the nicest of people personality-wise or had like you know questionable motives at first. You know, we're talking about your Tony Starts and uh, your uh, Stephen Strangers. The films gave you a reason to care about them. You know, you went on the journey with them. You got to see them, learn about them, see what sort of quirks made them. Like you know, was it? notable and likable characters like Captain America for instance I've never really liked him in the comics just because he's just a very I guess plain character to me he has he's, he's, he's very black and white yeah and there just wasn't much to him that I ever really cared about but Chris Evans's version of Captain America I like because while he still has those um, you know morals and ethics and he's like you know all about doing the right thing there's just extra depth that was given to him in terms of like uh, his interaction with uh, characters like Bucky and Peggy and the way in which he sees the world and um, you know as his unique perspective allows him to want to do the right thing but also be skeptical of certain things as well this guy is uh, someone that you want to have on your team essentially and uh, I guess obviously um, Robert Downey Jr he was just Robert Downey Jr being very charming and charismatic and wonderful but he also brought a certain level of depth to uh, Tony and I guess a likability that he didn't have in the comics beforehand because I've only really read Tony in I think was it the Civil War comics and I, even then I remembered him being I guess more of an arsehole than anything else so just uh, See in which the way in which these uh, actors have influenced their characters is uh, pretty interesting, and even Thor. Like, um, while I do miss, like, I guess the more uh, snobbyish, like, uh, arrogant Thor, who's just a little bit more, I guess, uh, Shakespearean. I do like the fact that this Thor is just more a casual goofball who, uh, you know, as it has these uh, really great comedic moments, and um, when he wants to, he can still be like fairly serious, but he's just like a just a nice little bro dude now and yeah just all the characters in these films have like just certain elements even if they're like um people that you're not supposed to like like some of the villains which i'll get to in a bit but i've fallen for so many of these characters just because of the way in which they're written and they're handled and they have like just these uh, interesting quirks like drax for instance one of the funniest dudes ever like i remember seeing the first guardians and that guy killed me like um on my favorite lines where um talking about the metaphors and it's just um you know is he oh yeah nothing goes over my head my reflexes are too quick i will catch it and i'm like what are you talking about you nutter it was the I, most I, amazing I you're thing. gonna say that it's that's the, one of my favorites too it's so amazing or like that bit where they're um they crash into um 
what do you call it? What's his name again? Um, what is the name of that Cree dude again? Um, Ronan. Ronan, yeah. They crash into Ronan's ship, but he's just there laughing his head off. And then when it, the ship finally stops, he's just like, yes. I'm just like, oh my God, this guy. I want to party with this guy. He's a, he's a wonderful man. So, yeah, it's just moments like that. Small things where, uh, you know, these characters have just become just so much more. They're like a little bit more three-dimensional. Yeah, and a lot of that honestly comes from the writers and Marvel Studios as a whole really understanding their characters and knowing how to write them and what makes them popular and kind of expanding on that and just making them enjoyable for almost anybody who watches them. They're their movies. Yeah, man, it's just... It's really good just... um how these characters work individually but also together especially with these uh, team up movies as well they they know who to put into certain pairings so like um, having Thor and uh, Bruce Banner team up in uh, Thor Ragnarok they had such an interesting dynamic Um, the relationship between Peter Parker and Tony Stark is a really good one as well from Civil War to Spider-Man Homecoming to obviously Infinity War you have the whole history going on between um, Black Widow and uh, Hawkeye the constant battle between um, Cap and Tony that eventually came to a head in Civil War Um, Cap and Black Widow have a really interesting dynamic as well there's just so many different people that have come together to have like these different like um, relationships whether they started out as adversaries or like you know I guess not exactly on the same page and now they become friends or just people that have been great together since the time that they first came together it's just it's good (laughs) yeah absolutely all right and um, now we talk about the villains now this is obviously I wouldn't say this is a topic of conversation between like you know certain fans or non-fans of like the MCU films some would argue that there are only a handful of good villains I would argue there's more than that although there are three notable people that do come to mind and that is Loki, Killmonger and Thanos and I wanted to talk about those three specifically before like giving a little bit of love to like some other characters as we go along but anyway Loki was the first he showed up in Thor and left a very strong impression as he was obviously more of a uh, I guess a misunderstood character who uh, I guess just wanted his father's love and just didn't appreciate being, you know, was it the sideman to uh, Thor's greatness. So you can see why he ended up like, you know, going into trajectory, you know, into the villain role by the time that film was ending and obviously going full on villain by the time uh, Avengers came around. This guy just wanted to have power, to feel important to be recognized and to rule and I love his characterization and even after the um, you know that film had ended seeing how he um, went on to you know do more of his other corrupt and questionable things in Thor The Dark World and uh, Ragnarok as well you see that this is just a very layered character who just has like you know just a lot of issues which honestly would be um, sorted if he just you know sat down and talk to someone about it, but he's just, I guess, a little bit more of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, emotional, like, and uh, reactive kind of guy. Then you have Killmonger as well, who is just a beast. I like how calculated he is, how, because of his childhood experience, he ended up, like, you know, was it going into, um, 
I guess, uh, black ops related things to train yeah. and become like super knowledgeable about like, you know, is it tactics and, uh, combat so that he had the ability to be able to come back to Wakanda just to go back and like, um, take back his, uh, birthright, I guess. And that was a very interesting thing. The guy is very knowledgeable about like, you know, it's a history and like, you know, obviously the, uh, the cause of his people and he has a vision and he has a plan for what he believes the world should be like and while he's not going about in I guess like um the nicest of ways you can see where he's coming from with like um his issues and the way in which he wants to go about and like you know course correct the way in which the world works and then you have Thanos the guy who we've seen since the end of the first Avengers film which um some people have been enamored by some people weren't overly keen on his like you know is it appearances after that film you know in guardians number one and i think was it which film was it? is it the end of avengers age of ultron where he showed up to go back and pick up that glove yeah i think so because i was actually a running joke of he said all right i'll do it myself and then it's like a couple of years before he finally yeah, does yeah. it himself so that was <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure it was uh, age of ultron yeah and he eventually shows up and he is just as wonderful and incredible to me at least as I could have hoped for. Now there were certain aspects of his character that was uh, changed for this film like the removal of uh, death even though there's some people that still speculate that she may still show up in this film or that she might be Hela but you know until I see it in like you know was it the actual theater I just don't subscribe to such rumors but um I thought Thanos was a very compelling character. He's a guy who believes in a certain amount of order and that things should be balanced. And because of his, like, you know, previous experience, he has a certain viewpoint in the world and the way in which it should be done. And you can see that he's not just a madman running around, like, you know, is it just um, obtaining power and, you know, doing things for the sake of it. He has a sense of logic and you can see where he's coming from. He's calculated. And he is subtle and respectful to some of his people and even merciful on a few occasions but you can see that the guy gets angry he is not someone to be messing with and it was also interesting to see him like you know is it as emotional as he was because while there have been villains in the mcu beforehand that do have like i guess uh, an emotional core you could definitely see that on display a little bit more with him more so than some of the other villains that we've had so far and I just thought he was a very nicely well thought out character who had a mission, who went out to do it, and he was just so good. He was, he was a really nice guy, and Josh Brolin, man, what a what a dude. He did the business. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I I'd agree with you that those are definitely their three best villains. Uh, Loki's arc over the course of was that four movies? It's almost been as strong as any of the heroes that we've seen you know he he had like the rise and fall and redemption that a lot of basic heroes like what they go through and and even like their own singular movie like he had that over four and so just the well he the way that he has been portrayed uh as a character over that time it really helped you connect with him in a way that you probably really shouldn't be connecting with a villain yeah I mean, and, and after a while, honestly, probably after, at least in th- into Thor Ragnarok, he really wasn't a villain anymore. And and actually, I read um, a little while ago, like the official MCU page, 
like they made a change to Loki and or like to, to the Loki page. And part of the reason why he did what he did in Avengers was because the Mind Stone kind of took over him the way that we've seen it take over other characters before. So it wasn't it wasn't oh, yeah. entirely him, uh, which kind of helps mm, explain mm. some of his actions. But um, I know I don't know if they planned it the entire time or if it was kind of like an afterthought. But like, oh yeah, by the way. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, just the way that he's kind of come and gone. And to, to, I mean, like it kind of reminds me of um, oh, what's the character from uh, um, Last Airbender? Um, Zuko. Yeah, Zuko. It reminded me a lot of him. Where he started out as one of the main villains, he kind of me- makes his connection with the heroes, aka Thor and the Avengers, and then he redeems himself and actually becomes a hero himself. Yeah, yeah. So I really like seeing that, and I, and I liked having that kind of like that arc for him. It was really cool that they were able to develop him, especially because I allowed him to allowed MCU or allowed Marvel to take advantage of Tom Hiddleston. Which is a fantastic actor. Oh yeah, definitely. So I, I think that's part of the reason why they kept it around so much. But uh, I'm just glad that they did. Uh, and then so for Killmonger, uh, I th- he's like I think him and Thanos are actually very similar in in a, in yeah. a way. But he he but Killmonger is like one of the ones. He's, he's like he's like another Magneto basically. Like where you, like you can see his point of view you can understand what he wants to accomplish you can understand why he's going about doing to try to accomplish like what he wants to accomplish but which it's the wrong way it's obviously the wrong way to go about it but you, but you can empathize empathize with him which is what makes a great villain if you can empathize with them even though you know that they're you know wrong uh, so everything that you said just makes him one of the best ones that's up there and then when it comes to Thanos, he needed to be a good villain. I mean, this, as somebody you build up in your movies for ten years, yeah, if, yeah. If he was like a terrible, like terribly written, terribly portrayed, terribly everything, that would have made Infinity War awful. Like I think we talked about it in our Infinity War podcasts, probably the spoiler one. But either way, yeah. Like when we were talking about it on like like for your, for your episode for that, like to me. Infinity War is Thanos' movie. Like, oh, yeah, that, of course. So, the, so that's part of the reason why they made him work, because we had just spent the last ten years with everybody, with all these heroes. We don't need to see more about like their motivations and, and their history and everything like that. Thanos is the new guy. Thanos is the one that we need to know about. So by making him that central focus of that movie really allowed you to get to know Thanos, which then made him... A more developed character than any other villain that they've had so far. Oh yeah, definitely, man. And, uh, and, yeah, and then to that. go back with, and then to go back with Killmonger, like how I said that they were the same. You can, again to like what I just said with Killmonger, like you can understand kind of why he's trying to do what he's doing, but it's the absolutely wrong way to do it. I mean, I mean, just to kind of nitpick his plan, he's gonna have to do that every couple of decades. it's not not very feasible yeah yeah oh gosh it's crazy isn't it and for me there's certain other villains that I wanted to go about and just like give mention to as like some my like I guess lower tier but still like you know I guess a cut above the rest I like Vulture there's a lot of people that had like a lot of love for him when he showed up I think of more so Michael Keaton than anything else and I 
for me, he definitely elevated that role above like what could be another just like simple throwaway character. I liked his motivations in the sense that he was, you know, was it? He was screwed over by Tony Stark. He just wanted to uh, do right by his family, but also just wanted to uh, do things in a way that benefited him and his people at the same time. So uh, I liked him. I also liked um, Obadiah Stane from uh, the first Iron Man. He was a simple yet, like, you know, was it calculated villain. The only issue I ever had with him was how he got into that suit and was able to pilot it. And I'm just like, no. Uh, no, you had no training. What are you, what are you doing? Yeah, I also liked um, Ego from uh, Guardians 2. That might be Kurt Russell's, like, you know, just wonderful charm, but he was pretty good in that film. And the uh, other person I want to mention was Baron Zemo. Technically just a character who, you know, worked from behind the shadows. But for what he was able to do to um, the Avengers, or at least attempted to do, uh, it was great. And he's one of the few remaining, you know, villains in the MCU right now that's still alive. Which I was so happy about because him and Vulture being alive means that they can still come back and cause some damage later on. Which I'm, I'm just a fan of, like, recurring villains, really. So, yeah, just that's my mm-hmm. two cents on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. out of all of those, I think the Vulture, for me, is, like, the fourth best villain like out of the three the behind the three we just talked about yeah um i think a lot of this is also to do with like one of the things i liked about the homecoming spider-man homecoming was that his ambitions were not large like he like the the whole thing for spider-man homecoming like the stakes were not like world destroying stakes he just wanted to make money he just wanted to get this technology and provide for his family and so you know he's he wasn't over the top. He he wasn't, you know, big and bulky and you know super strong. He's he's an, you know your everyday guy who's just trying to make some money. Like we like we needed. I think that's one of the things that's been lacking. I mean, not that's a bad or good thing, but in the MCU, it's like smaller stake stuff. Like you have like the Ant-Man movies that aren't super high stakes and the, yeah. the Homecoming, but like like a lot of the villains we've had so far like wants to destroy the world or take over the universe or what have you like like it's okay to have smaller ambitions but still but like for him like they were big ambitions but like they weren't like red skull or thanos level ambitions oh yeah definitely definitely and um that smaller scale was definitely like needed for um some of those films after uh, things started to get a little hectic in the was it phase two now let's talk about the humor uh, a contentious uh, subject for certain people but for me it's one of the sort of things that when they get it right it is damn funny and there are numerous numerous moments in uh, the mcu where it works the great thing about the uh, humor in the uh, mcu is that when it works it's great it's well placed it helps break up the uh, you know more dramatic elements of the film and it showcases like a lot of the talent for like you know comedy that some of the actors have whether you're talking about um any of the members of like you know the guardians of the galaxy films chris hemsworth like uh, robert downey jr mark ruffalo and you know is it even scarlett johansson while like uh, not busting out too many jokes she has like some really good timed uh jokes herself and you know there are numerous moments, whether it be physical humor or like, you know, lines of dialogue, which anyone can quote from these films, which is great. Um, you know, piss off ghosts from like, uh, you know, was it Thor Ragnarok or um, one of my favorite moments from uh, Civil War when um, Tony's having that conversation with uh, 
Peter about like um, his uh, uniform and there's the thing that he's just like uh, when he's got his goggles I was like how do you see through these things and Tony makes that weird noise and it's just one of the funniest things I've, I've seen that film I think maybe five or six times and that makes me laugh every time the holy shit line from like uh, Civil War when um, uh, Spidey sees like you know is it Ant-Man become Giant Man the you know whole Hulk throwing Loki around, but then he does the same thing to uh, Thor. Like you know, is it a Ragnarok after? Was it's like that's how it feels, and I'm like, oh, that's great. Um, and yeah, just numerous other things. I think was it this is another really like uh, small thing was um, in Spider-Man: Homecoming when um, they were talking about that uh, school dance. And um, was it I think that dude who was on like the TV show along with Betty Brant. He was sort of like, I guess, subtly asking her if she had a date, and she says she did. And there was just that one point where the camera just sort of focuses on his face, and it's so awkwardly brilliant, and I love it. It's just such, it's so many moments of just wonderfully done dialogue and just wonderfully placed framing where you could just lurk on the camera just long enough for something to be like, you know, just funny enough. Yeah, and and you wonder like how much actually came from the influence of the Avengers and the humor in that movie and how much came from like all the different writers just trying to do humor yeah. right in their own way yeah. cuz i mean there there's i mean like if like i said before like if you look at a lot of the phase 2 stuff like it's all a very similar tone and type of humor as Avengers was oh yeah but i mean yeah. i mean it worked in Avengers and um and comedy is another one of my favorite actually, favorite uh, movie genres. So, to be able to see a lot of these superhero movies incorporate humor that that I like, because like you said, it's not for, like a lot of there are people out there who don't really like the humor in it, but I like it. So for me to to kind of see that all the time, it's really enjoyable for me. Yeah, definitely. Um, now going on to the other end of the spectrum, one of the things that I feel like gets massively overlooked when it comes to talking about the uh, MCU films is having drama where it counts. Now, like we've said before, there are definitely comedic moments in the MCU films, so sometimes it does tend to drown out a little bit more the dramatic elements, depending on who you talk to and depending on what kind of film it is. But I feel like there are certain serious and dramatic moments that people always seem to forget when it comes to these films. Now, there's a lot of character deaths, and depending on who it is and how much screen time they have had, it will have varying levels of, like, you know, effects on you. But, for example, I appreciated the deaths of, like, um, well, not appreciated, but, you know, felt something when, like, Yinsen died in, like, uh, you know, the first Iron Man, or uh, Dr. Erskine died in, like, the first uh, Captain America. Even the fake death of um, Nick Fury in, like, uh, Winter Soldier was pretty effective as well. But there's... Um, some of my favorite moments um, one of my I think this is actually my top favorite moment is in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier when um, uh, Cat goes to visit Peggy and those guys obviously yeah, they had their thing which they never really got to properly act upon but you know we find out like you know is it uh, Peggy she got married she you know had a life without him and she's just in her old age and they're just like you know catching up and stuff like that but it's the moment where you see that she essentially like you know you find out she has Alzheimer's she forgets Cap and then just realizes he's there and like she sort of acts like this is the first time she's seen him since obviously back then and to me that's just one of those incredibly beautiful moments where I'm just like I felt so sad and it was awful but it was beautiful at the same time 
And now, as like uh, someone who has a family member who has Alzheimer's, like you know, it's just that much more effective to me now, knowing that like obviously there's people like you know out there who have family members, friends that just you know tend to forget, or like you know, is it just have those sort of moments where like you know they remember, then they forget, and you have to go through the cycle all over again. Also, with Guardians number one opening that film and the way in which they did with Peter's mum on a deathbed from cancer, I'm just like, Christ Almighty, what is this film? I remember watching that with my dad and my sister, and my sister was just like, well, you know, you can see that she and a good number of other people in the cinema were taken back, and she dies. And I'm just like, Christ, man, that's, that's pretty extreme. Um, but again, it's real world. Stuff like this happens. And again, the fact that they were able to incorporate into a Marvel film was just, you know, really good to me. And another one, um, before I stop talking, um, is uh, Civil War. The whole th conversation between uh, Tony Stark and Viola Davis's character when she talked about, obviously, uh, her son dying in uh, Sokovia and the fact that she blamed him for it. And then, you know, just that was a very, like, you know, was it small yet tense and painful conversation that just reminds you about like you know is it the Avengers they go do good work and all that but then there's you know just certain people that get caught in the crossfires and you know for all the good stuff that they do there's certain people that just don't appreciate their help and it's just it's crazy man um, you know there's these just these small minute sometimes subtle not sometimes not so subtle but these dramatic moments that just uh, remind you that these are like you know real characters with real situations that that count and it bugs me so much that people overlook these moments because they count, you know? Yeah, I think part of the reason why they get forgotten is because these are superhero movies, right? And so people re remember them for more for their action and, and maybe the humor. And, and they don't really expect like the huge dramatic moments that, that these movies have been able to give us. Yeah. So, so, like, when you're talking about it, I'm like, this took us, what, like, over an hour just to get to this, and we're talking about everything else? Yeah. So, I, I think it's just a, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate side effect of, of the genre that just, when it comes to talking about this, it's just not something that people talk about very much. Which, as you said, is unfortunate, because there are these moments that are very emotionally impactful, and w both for us and for the characters that leave you know an impact i guess i should get a thesaurus out um <laughs> you know on us and, and we remember these because they they leave an emotional uh fucking impact god damn it <laughs> yeah. they're memorable yeah and, yeah uh, right and so um but but they just get lost in the shuffle of everything else uh, that's great about these movies yeah definitely um but yeah, man, I just I just appreciate some of the more dramatic moments in these films. Um, there's another thing that I really like about these films, and uh, finally get to talk about it. The music! Ah, oh, boy! Okay, so here's the thing. Not all of the music of the MCU is, like, super memorable or really amazing, blah, blah, blah. But I do believe there are certain notable soundtracks and themes that have, like, you know, as it resonated not only with the fans, but with... Um, audiences in general and Marvel have definitely gotten better about that since um, I'd say the latter side of phase two and especially in phase three for me the top ones that I would uh, put up there would be Avengers number one Avengers Infinity War 
Black Panther and um, Ant-Man as well. Oh, and Doctor Strange, I forgot to add that one in there. And the interesting thing about these films is that they've acquired so many great uh, film composers from Anna Silvestri to Patrick Doyle, Michael Giacchino, Ludwig Göransson, Henry Jackman, Brian Tyler, Mike Mothersbrough, at least I think that's how you say his name, the guy that did the uh, soundtrack for uh, Thor Ragnarok. And uh, yeah, you got these guys that make some really interesting material. Some of my favorite themes is obviously Avengers theme, the Wakanda theme from uh, Black Panther, the Ant-Man theme, which was used mainly in the credit sequence, but it's a really good theme. And Doctor Strange's theme, which is also really cool, which is uh, part of the song Strange Days Ahead, which is used towards the latter side of the film and in the credit sequence, but has a few appearances in the film here and there. And um, yeah, the music can just be really effective and help, like, you know, was it some of those more emotional moments, um, like, say, Coulson's death in The Avengers, or um, the moment where which I just had, which I just lost, no I've got it again, the um, when the Guardians like uh, finally come together and like um, sort of hold the, um, I can't remember which of the Infinity Stones that is, the, but the basically the uh, purple one, when the music's swelling and all those guys are holding hands like you know was it and then just like obviously unleash the power on Ronin, that's a really good moment and just for the sake of being like you know a silly little fanboy, my one of my favorite things was when I went to see uh, Spider-Man Homecoming and the fact that they had an orchestrated version of the 1960 theme song made me the giddiest guy in the history of existence because I love that theme and I've always wanted to know what I guess an orchestrated version would sound like and to me that was like you know almost audio perfection in my ears just because I'm such a nerd for Spidey but um, yeah the, the Marvel's Cinematic Universe has some really interesting sounds and while not all great, where it counts, it can be really good. Yeah, like my favorite, probably out of honestly anything that they've done so far, is the Avengers theme. Like that is just um, like they've carried it over to like Age of Ultron, and they and they did it in Infinity War two with a little bit of you know extra sugar and spice on it, um, but. I think a lot of it honestly comes from, like when they played it during the that the panning shot that I talked or that we talked about earlier. Like I think oh, yeah. that like that just made that more emotional. Um, but just that whole soundtrack, especially with with that theme on it, was just is is probably one of the best ones that they have. Uh, is and besides the the Avengers, I, I think I did I did like the Ant Man a lot too. But I think that for that one though, I think that's just a matter of like. I feel like a lot of heist movies have a similar type of soundtrack, like with the, uh, with it being very quick and and high pitched and and stuff like that. So I think it's part of the reason why I like that one because it, it like it reminded me of some of the other heist movies that I like. Um, but that was really good. Um, Black Panther is probably one of the more recent ones, uh, like out of Phase Three, that just had an absolutely amazing uh, soundtrack. Um, there's probably not a whole lot that stands out to me. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, but I'm not as into the soundtracks as you are. Like I think when I notice them, for movies in general, I think when I notice the soundtrack, it's when it's when they're really good, and yeah. when, and if they're just like okay or bad, I I don't really notice them. So uh, I don't have as much to say about them as you did. No, that's fair. I mean, like uh, I love following like uh, film scores. I think that was uh, 
inherently built into my system after I went to college and uh, you know studied film and once you like start learning about all the critical elements there's certain things that just stand out that you can't help but pay attention to so it's one of the sort of things that I try to mention in most of my reviews and um, music is just a big deal for me in film and when it's executed well I do like to talk about it and um, you know um, Marvel seems to be on a bit of an upswing now so I just hope that they'll be able to continue that into like their, their next few films as well because um, you know we finally have a Marvel film that's won an Oscar for its uh, soundtrack uh, thankfully in the form of Ludwig Göransson's like win for uh, Black Panther which was just very happy for me as a fan of that soundtrack because of its varied sound uh, you know a combination of like sort of uh, African influence along with uh, orchestrated music and um, you know was there sort of hip-hop beats as well which is really nice so yeah I like that music bay and um, the final point is just a small yet notable one and it's the ever-expanding nature of the world which sort of feeds back into some of the earlier stuff I was saying about um, the references to uh, comics and future films but the cool thing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that this film world is just getting larger and larger. You look at Iron Man and think about how small that was, or just, I guess, Avengers by the time that came around was a much larger in scale film, but that was mainly just happening on, you know, the whole of Earth. But then when you go to stuff like Thor Ragnarok, or see the massive battle win Wakanda um, in um, Black Panther, or see the insane scope of um, some of the stuff going on in the Guardians of the Galaxy films and seeing the sort of crazy uh, locations and um, space battles that they have to deal with and then obviously Infinity War you're taking place on like several different planets over like you know different areas of the universe and um, you know there's stakes that are affecting like um, not only uh, you know one planet but like several places you know we'll talk about the galaxy and you know if you're going into uh, you know more uh, minor or like uh, other dimensional things you've got the stuff going on with uh, Doctor Strange where Dormammu's return could affect like you know all of reality and different dimensions and um, you know obviously with Ant-Man and the quantum realm there's stuff that goes on down there which obviously could have massive ramifications as well so the interesting thing about these films is that we went from Earth to Asgard back to the past and then we got to go to um other places like uh, you know space with the guys of the galaxy you've got to go to the quantum realm other dimensions in um, Doctor Strange different planets and uh, different solar systems in the in, in Infinity War and obviously with Captain Marvel we'll get to go to uh, you know space again in different areas and obviously with the upcoming uh, second Spider-Man film we get to go abroad you know to different parts of the world because um, there's not many of these films that uh, take place outside of the uh, area of America so to do some globe trotting is always pretty interesting the people at Marvel are just very smart in the way in which they plot this out seeing how certain things uh, people were willing to accept seeing where they could take the risk and jump off and do something else apply certain things so that people will be able to believe you know magic and other realms and uh, you know different dimensions different types of alien races, you know, that kind of thing. So the Marvel has just been very smart about the way in which they plot certain things out, and I, I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. And they like, and they, and they, and they make sure they plot things out ahead of time, which is one of the benefits that they've had of having Feige in charge of everything, is having this, like, one person in charge of things. Yeah. And kind of plotting out how it's going to go. But when they started, like, like you just said, like, they didn't start out big, like this was all an experiment to them like if they didn't make it past avengers they probably would have been fine with that uh but the fact that they 
kind of started out small, you know, test the waters a little bit. But I think once you realize that people will accept a talking tree, yeah, I, I think you've kind of you at that point you have free reign to kind of do whatever you want. Very much, yeah. <laughs> Um, Alright, so that is the conclusion of all of the prose side of things. Alright, and that's where we're going to have to cut things off for the time being. Thank you for listening to the first half of the Marvel Cinematic Universe pros and cons. I hope you had a good time listening to it because I believe that this is one of my favorite episodes I've done for a while. And it's always good to have a partner like Drew coming on to go about and help me flesh out my points. And yeah, man, um, whatever you thought about the episode, please be sure to... Holler at us in the comment section below or contact us on Twitter where you can find us under Hypersonic55 for me or Drew to the future for Drew. You can find Drew's blog on WordPress which is drewreviewmovies.wordpress.com I believe and you can find me hypersonic55.wordpress.com. Uh, yeah, please be sure to check out the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes that would be very very helpful and please be sure to come back for part two where we talk about the cons of the mcu and my gosh we got a good few things to get through in that one so hopefully you'll join us in part two so until next time ladies and gentlemen this is diamond 55 signing out peace